This episode is brought to you by Matcha. Stay tuned for more information about them later in the episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week, I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, 2021 has been an exciting year in the crypto space, but many major financial institutions have remained hesitant when it comes to Bitcoin. This clearly is not the case with Skybridge Capital. Anthony Scaramucci has been bearing the institutional flag for the Bitcoin community and just this year has launched the Skybridge Bitcoin Fund for institutional grade investing. It's my hope today to learn more about Anthony's views on Bitcoin and the entire crypto ecosystem, what he's seeing with regard to adoption by other institutions and how he views the recent dip and most importantly, how can her name as cool as the Mooch? <laughs> Anthony Scaramucci, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to be here. And congratulations on everything you're doing. And of course, I, uh, I follow you on social media and I'm a huge fan. And uh, I love what you said in the introduction. You know, not a lot of institutions in the space yet, Scott. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, I think that the institutional adoption story, frankly, has been overhyped. Um, we are in the space. We have probably half a billion dollars in Bitcoin. Uh, we just launched an Ethereum fund on July 1st. We've got about $25 million in that fund. And so we're hoping to scale that uh, as well. We have a digital architecture fund, which is tied to crypto. So we call it the Skybridge First Trust Digital Innovation Fund. So these are like PayPal and Square and companies like MicroStrategy, but then also companies like Overstock that have large VC components to them. And it's just a way to get our clients like immediately invested in a sleeve of stocks that are tied to the digital asset universe. But uh, I think you're right. I mean, it is slow going. Uh, there's 125 million Bitcoin accounts out there, as far as we can tell. We think it'll scale to a billion in the next four years. Uh, but we are very, very early. People ask me how early. I said, we haven't even broke spring training yet. Forget about what inning we're in. We haven't even headed north out of spring training. So very, very early. Uh, psychologically, some can't get their arms around that because they had the chance to buy Bitcoin at $500 a coin, a dollar a coin, $1,000 a coin. Uh, but what has happened, which I'm impressed by, is the storage capabilities and the ease of being able to purchase Bitcoin. I can go to Coinbase, I can go to Binance, I can go to BlockFi. I've got places where I can put my Bitcoin, buy my Bitcoin and know that it's safe, that I don't have to worry about my keys being stolen. So that's all positive. I love the spring training analogy. We usually get the uh, you know first pitch of the first inning analogy. So it's even earlier. I would have given the uh, Donald Trump awkwardly throwing out the first pitch uh, analogy, perhaps. <laughs> uh, such an athlete. Um, but so it's interesting though because a lot of the narrative about this run from ten thousand to sixty-five thousand, depending on where you peg the beginning of it, was this institutional ad adoption, largely driven by. Funds like yours, but also, of course, the micro strategies and Teslas of the world starting to talk about it. And I think there was a lot of hype that it was going to happen. And then the announcements just sort of never came. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, but 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 it, it should also tell you something about the tightness of the market. And so what I mean by market tightness, micro strategy, stories related to Elon Musk, uh, all of a sudden, boom, you're creating great Bitcoin appreciation. 
a little bit of bad news, there's leverage in the system, boom, you're creating a deceleration. Uh, that boom and bust cycle is usually associated with the early adoption of things. I can take you to a chart of Amazon, Facebook, Google, anything that's scaling pursuant to Metcalf's law and the networking effects that people are benefiting from now in the age of the internet has this boom bust feature to it. But what I'm impressed with with Bitcoin is that remarkably Bitcoin is anti-fragile because if you sit down and you go from an $8,000 coin a year ago to a 30 plus thousand dollar coin today, and let's say we didn't have the 65,000 blow off top. If I said to you, well, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's July of 2020, Scott. And I'm gonna tell you right now, sometime in July, right after the 4th of July holiday, Bitcoin is gonna be worth 33,000 a coin. You would have been euphoric. The Bitcoin community would have been euphoric. It's the psychology of going through that and seeing a $64,000 print that is unsettling to people. But I, I see that as a positive. I see that as a supply demand shortage. I see that as sensitivity to the fact that it's a tight market. If, if BlackRock hypothetically came in and said, okay, we're gonna buy a hundred, I don't know, million, 500 million, you pick the number. Let's say they bought $2 billion worth of Bitcoin. It would seismically, sizably move the markets. And so, um, you know, you've got tight supply and I think you have constant news stories, Scott, that are positive about Bitcoin, positive about the ecosystem, positive about adoption. You know, El Salvador, it's only 7 million people. I get it. But it is a country that is accepting Bitcoin now as legal tender. Um, uh, Facebook, uh, you know, is now thinking about ending Libra using Bitcoin, Square, Bitcoin, PayPal, Bitcoin. Um, you can build this case that, uh, you know, there's more good news about Bitcoin in the last 12 months than at any time in the history of Bitcoin in terms of where Bitcoin is going. I was discussing this with someone literally this morning. I said that we get a news story five times a day. It used to be five times a year before right. last year that you would see. But they're Bitcoin in general the positive. They're in general yep. positive. Even the latest thing from the Bitcoin Mining Council, where 56% of the miners are now using renewable energy. And so the whole specious argument that Bitcoin isn't green is it's a specious argument. It's, it's an argument thrown out there by people that should have bought the, those coins at 500. They're now pissed that they're at 33,000. So they're throwing eggs and tomatoes at Bitcoin, uh, primarily because they missed that movement. But my message to those people is that we're just getting started. You know, anything, anything below 40,000 to me is a screaming buy in Bitcoin. I mean, these coins are on sale right now. Um, you know, a year from now, I just said to you, it's July 2020, and I'm predicting July 2021. Well, let me get invited back. Hopefully, you'll invite me back one year from now. And these coins will likely be close to $100,000 a coin. And you'll be like, okay, why did I miss that two, three to one bump? Well, I missed it because people were telling me that I would be the stupid one. I'd be the last person into the story. <coughs> if, excuse me. If you remember, that was Amazon. Amazon has gone from a $10,000 investment on its IPO to $21,140,000 today. 
I want you to think of the magnitude of that. If you would just the strength to buy Amazon in 97, $10,000, now worth $21 million today. Uh, but you would have had to subject yourself to eight 50% downdrafts in Amazon. And there was one really bad one after the 2008 financial crisis, it was down 70%. And the front page of Barron's, the weekly financial news magazine, the front page was Amazon.bomb and why the end is coming for Amazon. And yet, if you just held out, uh, you got the direct benefits of all of what Robert Metcalf talked about when he discussed Metcalf's law and the scalability of a network. And Bitcoin is that. In fact, Bitcoin is growing faster than Amazon, Facebook, Google. It's adopting, uh, it's pacing the internet in terms of its adoption. If you think about the internet's move from 1995 and the introduction of Netscape to 2007, that 12 year move, Bitcoin is moving faster and there's more adoption of Bitcoin than there was the internet. Yeah. Uh, the Amazon story is incre incredible. Mark Yusko uh, shared almost the same idea with me, basically that uh, it's about impatience, obviously, and weak hands. And he made the claim, which I, I've not uh, checked on, that only four people still hold stock from the Amazon IPO, being Bezos' wife and, and two other people, because everybody else was shaken out at some point during that process. So I have heard that. And, and uh, my former law school classmate, who was the most successful person in our law school by a factor of everybody, meaning you could have taken all of our net worths and added them up and it still wouldn't have matched hers, uh, was the uh, late and incredibly great person, Joy Covey, who was the first CFO at Amazon. Um, and she made herself, I think, three quarters of a billion dollars being the person that helped Jeff take the company public. And I can remember her talking about this 10 years ago that normal people sell things that go from a dollar to a hundred. Normal people sell things that go from a hundred to a thousand. You, you know what I mean? And so I, I don't know if Mark is hundred percent right about that or not, but I believe he is based mm. on what I know about human nature and human psychology. Well, I think most early Bitcoin adopters probably sold at a thousand dollars. No question. I have a lot of friends of mine that got, that got shaken out um, at lower prices, but I didn't come in until higher prices. You know, I, I will say this to Bitcoiners everywhere. Uh, nobody feels that they're early. Nobody, unless your name is Satoshi Nakamoto. I got in at 10,000 a coin. I've been buying through my last printed coin was 63,200. Of course, I've bought coins since that print. So I've been buying coins every month. So, so I've gotten some recent prints in the 33s, 37s, but I haven't gotten the low print either. You know, I'm buying regularly weighted average dollar cost averaging into the coins. And, and but my point is, I don't know a person that owns a Bitcoin that thinks, thinks they got there early. They all shake their heads and said, well, I could have bought it at 10, 50, 100. But remember something, somebody like me is not buying it back then. Hard to store. Uh, what had to put it on a USB or my laptop. Uh, there wasn't Coinbase Pro or Fidelity Digital Assets. I couldn't feel comfortable scaling into Bitcoin. And again, our company has about $500 million worth of Bitcoin, a half a billion dollars of Bitcoin right now. I couldn't have felt comfortable scaling into that level of coin 
if there wasn't a safe place to store it that I didn't feel uh, was impenetrable from hacking or even if it got hacked, it had a layer of insurance and so forth. So the world is changing. And with that, the adoption story will change and it'll make it better. I loved how you expressed the 8,000 to 33,000 in one year idea, if you eliminate the 65,000 to 33,000 mentality of it. Um, what I think is the story that nobody tells is that Bitcoin dropped from 65,000 to 29,000 and the network's up and running. China banned miners, the network's up and running, it's fine. Everything's working, no bailout, no centralized authority had to come in and start buying things. It's a free market that's working perfectly as intended without any assistance. And I think that is one of the most fascinating stories of our time. And I said earlier that it's anti-fragile. You just made the case for anti-fragility because everything you just said is symbolic of anti-fragility. It got hit, it got slammed, it's intact. Uh, given all of the bad news, frankly, you would have said, okay, why aren't those coins down 80 or 90%? Uh, but they're not. Uh, and they seem to have a bid. They seem to be stuck in a trading range for right now. That's okay. Um, but, but imagine a trillion dollars taken out of the banking system, the US banking system. Uh, imagine the uproar. Imagine the congressional intervention. Imagine the Federal Reserve coming to the rescue of these banks. Yet you have this decentralized network where all those things happened and uh, the system is, is running. It tells you about how decentralized networks are way more stable than centralized networks. And it just, it tells you that we've empowered ourselves now with technology. This device that I'm sitting here with is a radio station. It is a television studio. It is a uh, motion picture studio right here in this device. And all of a sudden, as a result of that, I can build my own YouTube ecosystem. I can build my own pay Apple application. Look at my friend, Anthony Pompliano, what he's done with his social media, his YouTube channels, his, his newsletters. It's all because we have empowered the individual with technology. And so wouldn't it make sense that we would then further empower individuals by making our money better, by making our store of value technologically in sync with the times. And the answer to that is, of course, of course we would do that. And so we are doing that. And uh, if you're 97, you may be missing it. Maybe you're not spending enough time focused on it. But if I'll tell you what, if you're 27, you're not missing it. You're right on it. Speaking of 97, uh, Buffett and Munger and their generation seem to be somewhat uh, unhappy with Bitcoin and obviously rat poison squared and, and all the narratives that they've been perpetuating. What do you make of that generation's disdain for the asset? Do you think that it's too old to understand it or purposely dismissing it or that they see it as a threat or none of the above? Well, probably a little bit of the above, right? It's probably a little bit of everything. But I think the thing that I find weird about it is I'm a disciple of Buffett and Munger's. I view myself as an intellectual disciple of theirs. I don't know them. I met Warren Buffett a few times. I think I have a picture of myself with him. Uh, so I, but I have no, no relationship with him. But what I would say about Mr. Buffett is he is a legend, uh, arguably one of the best capital allocators ever unless your name is Jeff Bezos. He, he by far 
is the best capital allocator I've ever met. We can discuss that if you want. But Buffett as a stock market investor did brilliant things. I mean, his performance has been unbelievable. And one of the core philosophical tenets of him and Munger's argument is that they need to know the other side of the case better than their own case. So if they want to be long American Express, they want to know the bear story behind it. And what Munger has said repeatedly is I want to know the opposing argument better than my own. Yet when I hear him talk about Bitcoin, I can tell he has not done the work. Uh, I'll give you an example. Ray Dalio, who was a young pup at the age of 71 compared to somebody that's 97, uh, who was negative on Bitcoin. He did the work. He did the homework. He steeped himself in the system. And he came out of the, on the other side owning it and suggesting that it's better than bonds. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones has done that. Stan Druckenmiller has done that. Bill Miller, the legendary value investor originally from Lake Mason, the Lake Mason Value Trust has done that. So, you know, I think Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, for whatever reason, are jumping the shark here. It could be old age. It could be lack of intellectual curiosity. It could be frustration that something is happening that they don't get. Um, or it could be what Buffett said about Amazon. I was with Warren Buffett and a guy named Jeff Bezos at the Sun Valley Allen & Company conference in the year 2000, where Mr. Buffett said, yeah, Mr. Bezos seems like he's got an interesting thing. It's a bookstore plus some other things. I'll never invest in it. Okay, well, why won't you invest in it, sir? Well, it's technology. I don't understand it. I'm going to stay in my core, my circumference of competency. When Amazon rose, he applauded it, but he never invested in it. He did invest eventually in Apple and IBM because he looked at those from a numerical perspective in terms of what their growth rates were. And so Buffett and Munger are not Metcalf Law network effect investors, a result of which they've missed trillions of dollars of value, uh, but doesn't make them any less successful as investors. It just makes them human. It makes them fallible human beings, which we all, of course, are. Guys, I really hope that all of you are not still trading on the old platforms like Uniswap when there are much better options like Matcha. And now Matcha has upgraded to 2.0. Now, I've told you about Matcha a number of times. They have limit orders, which these other platforms don't, which is absolutely incredible. So you don't have to sit there staring at your screen waiting for that perfect moment to enter or exit a trade. And they also aggregate liquidity from all of the different platforms, finding you the best price and reduced fees. But now they have Matcha 2.0 and have added so many awesome features. Matcha is now the only DEX with an integrated fiat on-ramp. You can put your dollars directly onto the platform. They also now have OTC trading for orders between 1K and 1 million, which is beyond huge. And maybe most importantly, Matcha now supports trading on Polygon, meaning that those gas fees will almost evaporate completely. Now, if you guys want to check out Matcha, which you absolutely should, you can do that at the Wolf of All Streets dot link slash matcha that's the wolf of all streets dot link slash matcha please check them out i'm telling you it will save you so much money and is such a superior experience do it now i would love to hear more about bezos being the greatest capital allocator as you spoke about so bezos uh in response to buffett in 2000 he wrote down his manifesto and uh, i would encourage everybody to read it or you can buy the book, Invest and Wander. Uh, it's the writings of Jeff Bezos, or you can read his last letter before he, he departed as CEO of Amazon. And basically what Bezos says 20 short years ago 
is the money coming into Amazon is going to be focused on scalability. And the money coming into Amazon is going to be focused on building the network. Okay, so he got what Metcalf was saying about the network effect very, very early on. And he made all of those investments propitiously related to that. And result of which it's been staggeringly successful. Um, Mackenzie Bezos combined with Jeff Bezos, it's $250 billion. It's a quarter of a trillion dollars between those two people and they own a fraction of Amazon shares. And so uh, when you think about allocation of capital, it was disciplined, it was aggressive. Uh, he's had failure upon failure. Uh, what are those failures upon failure? Uh, they would be uh, Fire Phone, the first starting of the Kindle. I could name, I could name hundreds of them. Uh, he, his portrait was unveiled in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington two years ago, and he started reading off his failures, and everyone was giggling. Here he is, the richest person in the world. Um, and so, so, but the capital allocation point is it was concentrated, it was disciplined, he had a vision, and he stayed on it, and pursuant to one of Buffett's principles, Warren Buffett said, keep your eggs in one basket. You know that cliche, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Warren Buffett said, keep your eggs in one basket and watch the basket. In other words, it was okay to be concentrated if you knew what you were doing. Where Buffett would say, don't trade Michael Jordan for four scrubs and call it diversification. In fact, that might be diversification. So, so Bezos never strayed from his mission. And of course, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, when, he, when he realized that the services that he needed to grow Amazon, uh, there was nobody better to create those services than himself and his team. That's when you really saw the exponential pickup in Amazon. And just think about all of the great businesses that are powered up by Amazon Web Services today. Yeah. Uh, it's such an interesting point, obviously, that Diversification is important when you have wealth, but you need concentration to acquire it in the first place, right? 100%. Um, at, at what point should an investor consider diversifying? Well, it depends on what you want to be. You know, if you're shooting the moon, you got to stay concentrated. If you're wealthy, and let's say I put my financial advisor's hat on where I, I served as a financial advisor for a good part of my career, I would tell you that the, there are two key words that I always mention to the wealthy. Uh, and you wanna hear those two key words? It's my whole nice. philosophy, ready? Stay wealthy, you're <laughs> wealthy, so stay wealthy. Okay, don't chase rainbows or unicorns. You don't have to be the first person into Uber, or the first person into Facebook, but what you need to do is you have to have a diversified plan that beats inflation that outpaces your peer group. And so that, that requires a lot of equity. It requires some private equity. It requires some early stage company development because of the transformation of our society. Um, the 60-40 portfolio is no longer working. Uh, the bond market has been imperiled by all of the money printing. Uh, and so you need to think in a more targeted, diversified growth oriented way as an individual investor, if you wanna grow uh, ahead of uh, your wealth. And that's the only way to stay wealthy. 
If you decide, okay, I made my money, I'm gonna stick it in the ground or I'm gonna give it to the US government in the form of treasuries, you won't be able to compete with your peer group at Sotheby's at the auction or for Hamptons real estate on the ocean, it just won't happen. So um, it's, a, it's, it's a philosophy that I think is changing. You know, if you had asked me 25 years ago, I would have said, okay, 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, maybe some of those bonds are in munis, blah, blah, blah. That, that world is over. And, you know, and, and by the way, Bitcoiners understand that. Bitcoin see, Bitcoiners see 31% dollar production in a year. Bitcoiners see uh, $469 billion of money printed by the Federal Reserve in calendar year 2021. Bitcoiners know that if they have dollar denominated assets, they've been taxed by their central bank. If I'm sitting there, I have $10,000 in my checking account. Well, it's got less purchasing power here in 2021 than it did in 2020. I've been silently taxed by my central bank. Right, well, if you can't do it with the 60-40 all allocation that we've talked about for decades, then where does Bitcoin fit into that percentage for a person who's already accumulated wealth? Well, if you talk to my partner, Brett Messing, okay, he's irresponsibly long Bitcoin. I'm the trustee on his account and he's got almost all of his assets in Bitcoin. So he's a true wow. believer in Bitcoin. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer, but I'm not an evangelist. I don't think Jesus and Moses had a baby and they gave birth to a baby that happened to be Bitcoin. Okay, that's not me. Okay, I'm, I'm in the camp of this is a great asset and this is an asset that is arcing pursuant to Metcalf's law and a result of which it'll be several hundred thousand dollars a coin. And I want my clients to be exposed. Um, if you're aggressive, I'm going to say 8%. If you're, but if I will tell you this, you're foolish at 0%. So to me, it goes from foolish 0% exposure to Bitcoin to aggressive 8% exposure. If you're Brett Messing, you're at 95% exposure to some of these other people. And they are true believers. And they're in that Buffett category or that Bezos category where they've decided that this is where they're going to put their eggs and they're going to watch the basket. So, so uh, and you gotta, you got to accept the volatility, right? Remember, Bezos himself, he's gotten to where he is by recognizing that there's volatility to the network. Eight times Amazon dropped more than 50%. And so, and that, that'll likely be true with Bitcoin. You know, you, you could be at a $500,000 coin descending to 300,000. You and I will be on a podcast and people will be saying, poo, poo, Bitcoin went from 500 to 300. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, but I bought it at 30. Okay. And it's now yeah. at 300 and it'll likely get to 600 if you're patient. So, so to me, I think it's a complicated thing, but it requires a lot of discipline and it, re it requires a understanding of the macro dynamics of where the future is, you know, irrespective of the current fears and uncertainties. So you talk about Metcalf's law and, and network effects, and clearly you guys are moving into Ethereum. You said you have 25 million in a new fund. Where do you think that it's, it, it plays a role in an investor's portfolio and why are you interested in Ethereum now as well? So I accept, you know, a principle that David Rubenstein, of all people, a great establishmentarian, the founder of Carlyle, he's on every national board and he's a public figure of the establishment. He said a few weeks ago that uh, it's not written on a tablet somewhere that the currencies have to be 
created by the sovereigns, that ultimately there will be other forms of currency that are accepted. Now, somebody said, well, these are like whiskey receipts back in the whiskey rebellion. And I'm like, well, no, they're not actually, because this whole thing is based on mathematical properties and it's based on a proven mathematical ledger, okay? So there's no way that you could say that. Now, having said that, what I just said, okay, I do believe that there are other currencies or tokens that will be successful. There will be use cases for other currencies and other tokens. So, um, I mean, we can talk about Dogecoin. I don't see the relevancy to that or the long-term applicability. I get the fact that we're in a fever pitch bubble related to Dogecoin and that some very high profile billionaire celebrities are talking about it, but I don't see the long-term positivity that that to me feels like pets.com or eToys back in the late nineties. Uh, but Ethereum feels like there is a use case. Ethereum feels like there's a, uh, you know, these, these dApps, these applications that you can put on Ethereum and the whole NFT market is based on Ethereum. Now that's not to say that someone couldn't come in and eclipse Ethereum. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I would suspect that perhaps Ethereum will have competitors that perhaps may have faster protocols or may prove to be more eco-friendly. It's very hard to uh, know, frankly. But what I do know about Ethereum at 200 plus billion dollars in market cap, it's here to stay and it's part of the future. And those two seem to be the gold standards in cryptocurrency right now. And I would want my clients exposed to both. Now, that's not to say that six months from now, I won't be on your podcast and say, well, you know what? My research team and I are working on other tokens that we like, that we may want to include in that sort of, these are the coins of the future. Uh, but I'm not there yet on the other coins, but I am there on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I would have to imagine that when you started talking about crypto to your clients that you had some pushback or at least questions. Have you seen any sort of oh, paradigm liquidations. shift? I'm not pushback and questions. I'm selling my shares in your fund. I said, you are, yes, you own Bitcoin. Bitcoin is rat poison. Okay, sell the shares in the fund. Remember, in my core fund, I have 5% exposure of cost. Now, through the good luck of appreciation, it's now at 9%. But that's born from, well, you have 9% exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah, but I started at 5%. I mean, my, my, my point being is I'm not going to sell Bitcoin just because it's doing well. I'm going to hold Bitcoin until it reaches our, our near-term to long-term price targets. And, and, and you know, people are upset about that. They will sell out the Bitcoin. And then if I'm right, they're going to look back and say, well, geez, that was a mistake. Why did I do that? My point is that 5% exposure I'm in a situation, Scott, where 5% exposure doesn't destroy me if I'm wrong. But if I'm right, and this thing goes three, four to one, it's going to have a magnificent effect on the portfolio. But forget about clients saying, hey, what the hell are you doing in Bitcoin? It's the call like, I'm firing you tonight, you own Bitcoin. Okay. You know, and, and by the way, I've, I've done that calculation. You know, I've said, okay, I'm going to get 5% of the people that fire me. Bitcoin's going to be up 300%. So it will, my Bitcoin exposure, I will make a prediction right here on your podcast that the Skybridge Bitcoin exposure will outpace who's ever redeeming from us as a result of our Bitcoin exposure. So to me, 
it's it's a value exchange, if you will. Well, that was I'm assuming on the in the earlier days. Have you seen a benefit from new customers coming in who are interested in Bitcoin and like the fact that you're exposed? Small, consistent with what you and I know about institutional adoption. It's small. Um, you know, yes, the answer is yes, but it's small. Uh, but I bet you two years from now, the answer will be yes, and it'll be more sizable. That makes sense. So the irony, the irony of Bitcoin is the higher its price, the easier the adaptability will be. Of course. Yeah, Amazon at $41, uh, it could go to zero. Amazon at $3,000, I'm buying it. Let me watch Jeff Bezos fly to the moon. It's absolutely true. So do you think that we need a vehicle like an ETF to achieve that level of adoption or security or for this big wall of money from pensions and endowments to be able to confidently invest in the asset? Yes, is the short answer. Now, I have an ETF application in right now, so I'm not allowed to speak about these ETFs. Unfortunately, I'm in a quiet period. But yes, is the short answer. The more user-friendly products, the more ease of storage, the more confidence that people have, uh, the more likely they will invest. Do you think that there's a number of market cap where it becomes reasonable for the larger money? It's like you said, you sort of have this cognitive dissonance. You can't buy it because it's cheap. You need it to actually to be more expensive to gain exposure and know that you'll have the liquidity or be able to enter and exit. Do you think that there's a level that we need to be watching where all of a sudden this wall of money can enter? I do. I think if it sustains itself over a trillion dollars in market cap. So it was there briefly for probably a six week period of time. But if it were actually to sustain itself, meaning it got there and you could see that it had reached escape velocity and to what plan B talks about is stock to flow model. It's uh, the supply has tightened and the demand is robust. Then yes, I think people will start adopting it. And, and remember, you are buying something. Remember, you're buying something. When someone says to you, well, it's technologically worthless, it's just a cryptograph. I was listening to Senator Elizabeth Warren discuss it and I was like, okay, wow, she really is this unknowledgeable, which is actually scary because she's making the laws of the United States. But then the other thing is she's supposed to be for the little guy. And so she sounded like a central banker when she was talking about it. I mean, Bitcoin is for the little people. It's not for the the big people. Bitcoin is an empowerment move. And, you know, what I would say when you step back and you look at the whole landscape of everything, um, if we get this right, Bitcoin will improve the society and it's worth something because of its network. You know, don't think it's worthless because it's a cryptograph. There's a network effect. It's the same why all these phones tied to each other is worth something. It's the same reason, you know, I used this example earlier today and I'll share it with you because I was thinking about it over the weekend. An old fashioned network, Coca-Cola. It's a bottler, a distributor, it has trucks and it moves beverages across six continents, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is the second most recognized phrase in the English language. Number one is okay. Number two is Coke or Coca-Cola. Everybody knows what it is. If we destroyed all the bottling plants, destroyed all of the equipment related to Coke, and we went to Wall Street and we said, we had these two words, Coca-Cola, we'd like to raise billions of dollars to recreate that. Could we do it? 
And the answer is yes. So there's a value in the network. The word Bitcoin, 125 million users scaling to a billion users, the word itself has value. The same way the URL cars.com has value or amazon.com has value. These are locations where a network exists. And in Bitcoin's case, it's a store of value network or a monetary network. Uh, and on its own, that in itself is quite valuable. What does Bitcoin look like at a billion users? That would be a different world. Well, I'm going to be very simplistic. Okay, a billion users is roughly eight times more than we are right now. And so Bitcoin, okay, I actually think we're undervalued and technically oversold here. So I would have thought that Bitcoin would be where we are in terms of users at 50,000. So intrinsic fair value to me would be about $400,000 a coin at, at a billion users. Because again, you have fixed supply and you've got, uh, you've got less than 21 million coins out there. You and I both know that the mining finishes 2140, you know, in the year 2140, but you've also lost coins in the process of adoption. We've probably got two or 3 million coins that have been misplaced. They could be in a landfill, they could be on an old Blackberry, or somebody's laptop that was uh, jettisoned uh, in 2010. And so a result of which you've got probably 18 million coins in the universe. Let me point out something that JP Morgan has said, there are 48 million millionaires on planet earth, according to JP Morgan. Well, there are only 18 million Bitcoins in existence. You don't even have enough Bitcoins for every millionaire on planet earth to own one coin. So you can't tell me that the scarcity properties of this are not gonna drive prices higher. Uh, and you know, remember, what are you getting from Bitcoin? Store value component, you're getting the transferability, the ease of transferability, the impregnability of the blockchain. Uh, these are super valuable things if you really study money, the ascent of money and the history of money. As you said earlier, Bitcoins obviously get it. We see money being printed. We see the monetary supply increasing 40% in a year. You're on Wall Street. Do they get it? Do they see it? Or do they just see stocks going up and it's general state of euphoria and they don't even worry about hedging against it with something like Bitcoin? So Wall Street's the last to get these things. The last place. Wall Street is part of the collective society uh, the collective wisdom of society. I don't, you know, there may be a madness to crowds, but there's also a wis wisdom in crowds. You know, ultimately crowd psychology, uh, when you're in the markets, is the collective wisdom of something. And Wall Streeters, by and large, are going to wait the same way they waited on Amazon, the same way they waited on Microsoft. You know, I've been a holder of Microsoft since 1991. I was 27 years old. I started buying. Microsoft. And I was buying in dribs and drabs back then. And, you know, I bought and held it. 30 years later, I've got a nice position in Amazon. I'm sorry, Microsoft. But when I was learning about Microsoft in 1991, the Wall Streeters were complaining about the move from 1986 to 1991. They'd missed the move. But now we've got a strong buy on Amazon. Right? It went public in 86. And so I started buying it in 91 and then Wall Street 
kaputs on Amazon, right? I'm sorry, Microsoft. Remember it flatlined for many years. Then it went down for many years. Then during the bomber years, it was a quite lackluster company. So you could have sold your Amazon and you could have been juked out of your Amazon. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, po the point I'm trying to make, but if you stayed in, you got rewarded over the 30 years. And so you gotta be long-term in your thinking. And the Wall Streeters are, they think they're in the investment business. I always tell people, we're actually in the fashion business. Skirts go up, skirts go down. Uh, we're into private equity, then we're out of private equity. If you and I were doing this podcast in 2007, we're investing like college endowments. In 2009, after the crisis, we have to have an ATM machine, instant liquidity in our, uh, in our lobby of our hedge fund. Now, today, we're into private equity and venture, you know, and Bitcoin. You know, the point being is Wall Street is moving around like the fashion industry. Uh, and they're usually the last people to adopt. When, when you see Goldman Sachs write a brilliantly positive story on Bitcoin, call me. We'll probably have to lighten up on our position a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to sell. Uh, absolutely. But I mean, with regard to money printing, I remember 2008 and thinking a couple hundred billion dollars was astounding, unsustainable. It would be impossible. We'd see crazy inflation. And now we throw around trillions like it's candy, right? I mean, a trillion here, a trillion there, three trillion there, and nobody seems to flinch. I, I just don't get it. Well, here's, here, here's, here's what I would say to you. And this is the most distressing thing that I'm gonna say. If, if you had an easy solution that didn't cause you any political angst and it didn't cause you to lose your political power, would you take that solution? If you were, a, if, if you were Pavlov and you were a rat and you could press one lever and you got icky bitterness from it and you press another lever and a sugar cube came out, which lever are you gonna push? And so what I'm concerned about in our society now is that we're thinking like that. So we're not gonna build the infrastructure, we're gonna go light on infrastructure, we're gonna go light on the re-education of the United States in terms of evening the public K through 12 education. We're gonna go light on long-term fiscal spending, like reshaping the electric grid, reshaping 5G, making best-in-class networks for our citizens, and we're gonna hand out money. That's what we're gonna do. So we're, all we're focused on is this very simple, short-term, easy solution. And if you read Nakamoto's white paper, the group known as Nakamoto, they very simplistically explain to you that is the natural order of human beings at the end of an empire. They don't wanna make the hard decisions. The hard decisions were made in the 1890s, made in the 1940s. They're made in the 1950s during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the rise of Sputnik, but they're not being made today. What, what's happening today is we're gonna print money. The country's used to the money printing. Oh, by the way, it has very deleterious effects on middle and lower middle income people because they can't catch up as a result of the wages. Uh, and the rich get richer. Now, I'll say this to you because you're a student of history, but I think it's worth reinforcing. After Bretton Woods, when we had a tight trading ban and we had imposed fiscal discipline among the nations, 
we had our greatest aspirational generation from 1944 to 1971. We had rising living standards in the West. When we decoupled ourselves and became a fiat currency in the United States in August of 1971, 50 short years ago, think about what we did. A dollar and the ounce of gold, $35 per one ounce of gold. Today, it's $1,700 per one ounce of gold. We crushed our dollar. We took our dollar down 99% in 50 years. And I want you to think of the magnitude of that. You have a dollar of purchasing power for a $100 bill today. Think about the magnitude of that. You know, I'm going to make you laugh for a second. There is Monopoly, the first game of Monopoly. There were $6,000 Monopoly dollars in the game itself. So it was, came out in the 1930s, that game. If you go to eBay, that game was purchased for $2 in 1935. You got to buy it for $600 today in mint condition or $1,000. The monopoly money inside the game has gone up in value compared to the dollar that has gone down in value. So the monopoly money in game one of monopoly is worth more than the US dollar over the last couple of years in terms of it becoming a collectible now. My point, my point being is uh, this is something that uh, you're not going to stop. You're borrowing 55 cents of every dollar that we're spending. You tell me when we're going to right size that or when we're going to correct it. So can either political party at this point make any claim to being fiscally conservative or fiscally responsible? Or is it Two sides of the same coin, the printer goes burr and- No, it's two sides of the same coin. Let me make you cry for a second. Uh, we entered January of 2009 with an $8 trillion US budget deficit. In 13 short years, that's Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and a little bit of Joe Biden. Okay, 13 short years, we've added $20 trillion to the deficit. So. So from George Washington to George Bush, eight trillion. Okay, and by the way, if you took out Bush, it was four trillion. Okay, so I mean, he was a profligate spender, but we're now at 20. So you tell me, and what I know is that has a regressive effect on the middle and lower middle class. It hurts them in a way that I can't fully describe, you know, because I grew up in the middle class area my parents didn't go to college and my dad was a laborer. He worked by the hour. And I can tell you that his friends and that generation of people, and I'm one of the few people in my family that actually went to college. I'm the only person in my family at my generational level that went to law school. And I can tell you, I've got clamors out here on Long Island, deli uh, owners, auto glass installers. I've got a whole collection of people that are my age that live in the blue collar world. And it's almost impossible to keep up. It's almost impossible. So what's the end game? How does that end? Well, you know, it ends the way it typically does. You know, what ends up happening, we go through a further monetization. And then we get a point of expiration where you can't do that anymore. And then you have to adopt a new standard. You know, you have to do what El Salvador did. Okay, you have to say, okay, nobody trusts our fiat currency anymore. And so we're going to move to a dollarization of our fiat currency. Wait a minute, they're not trusting the dollar anymore. Okay, what can we move to that they'll trust? And I think what Nakamoto said is that something that's decentralized 
that can't be affected by politicians or policymakers is where we're going to go. So is it a pipe dream to say that when that inevitable explosion of the dollar or any other currency happens that a Bitcoin standard is possible? Is that a pipe dream or do we just see new dollar, you know, digital dollar, whatever uh, it's called? Well, remember, if it's a new dollar, it's always subject to the whim of the fiat policy and politician movement. So if they don't standardize it and they don't cap it, then you'll always have that capricious outcome. You know, so yes, I mean, they could, they could reset it that way um, or they could move to something that's more standard. It may, may or may not be Bitcoin, but I think Bitcoin's got a slot. It's either Bitcoin or Bitcoin's a store of value and it's some other cryptographic currency or it's, maybe, it's a maybe it's a basket. You know, maybe the fiat currency central bankers get together and say, okay, listen, we're competing against Bitcoin and this basket is going to be 25% dollar, 25% RMB, 25% euro, and 25% the rest of the world's currencies. And we're going to fix the price at one. And we're going to digitize that. And it's going to be a global fiat currency. Right. You know, good luck with that, though, because look at how they fight in the European market. Remember, the euro is not a currency. That's a fixed exchange rate system. Those countries are not abiding to any level of... Uh, federalism, if you will, where they're conjoined at the budgetary level, all they are is a fixed exchange system, basically among those countries. So uh, well, I can tell you axiomatically, there's been no fixed exchange mechanism that's ever survived. They all get broken because of the nature of these things and the way politicians move things around. It's terrifying to think about. I know that we're out of time here. Where can everybody, uh, where can everybody keep up with you after this? So we do, we do on Wednesdays a Bitcoin review. You can go to skybridge.com and you can, we do a live Bitcoin review 4 p.m. Eastern time on the, uh, on the East Coast of the United States, Bitcoin review. Uh, we do uh, a newsletter. You can, you can sign up for our newsletter. Just go to skybridge.com and you can find our Bitcoin newsletter, which is out every week. I'm on uh, Mooch FM, uh, a podcast once a week, which, you know, you're going to have to do a home and away now. Scott, I got to invite you on my podcast. I'm ready. I'm going to reach Anytime. out. Uh, and then we have uh, the SALT Talks. We have our conferences, which are live conferences prior to the pandemic, soon to start up again in September. Uh, that's SALT.org. And then we have a series of SALT Talks where we invite people on uh, that are authors, politicians, policymakers, generals. CIA directors, we've got a whole slew of different people that we ask about the world and where the world's going. So uh, yeah, we've got a lot to say uh, and we're putting our money where our mouth is. And I think, I think we're gonna be right, but you know something, I'm smart enough and humbled enough by markets to know that I could be wrong. So I always tell people, size yourself appropriately, uh, but think very, very long-term, be patient, patient in investing. If you're investing in high quality things and you're patient, you're gonna win. That's been my message. I think that's as good of a parting message as we can hope for. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thanks, it. We will Thank definitely you. follow up soon. Thank you for having me on, man. That was great. I, I, I appreciate it.